Hello and welcome to Film Festival Reviews, a place where filmmakers and film lovers stop by and listen in on what's happening in and around the film festival circuit worldwide. This is Christina Kotlar, your host, and I have to say that this year's 10th anniversary of the Woodstock Film Festival from September 30th until uh, October 4th was one of the best film festival experiences I've had in a very long time. In a true spirit of a film festival that a community loves to have, co-founder and executive director Mayra Blaustein was on hand introducing films and filmmakers for almost all of the events that I had attended. Uh, there was great programming offered, a wide cross-section of genres. Uh, this festival is very filmmaker and media friendly. The staff helped me so much. I want to thank everyone on the Woodstock Film Festival staff the people of Woodstock who host filmmakers in their homes instead of renting and leaving town are wonderful. I met the regulars at the Bear Cafe who were giving me tips on the shortcuts through the back roads uh, getting from where I was staying and uh, there are a lot of meandering back roads going through the fog so staying in Woodstock is a better idea and there's always someone that's giving you tips on getting a good house wine for six bucks. Music is a huge part of the communal experience given the legacy as I took part in the opening night celebration of the 40th anniversary of the Woodstock Festival. First I was making plans just to come for the weekend, Friday, Saturday and Sunday, but when I heard the opening night film was going to be Woodstock Now and Then, a documentary directed by Barbara Koppel, well, I packed up my car and got on the road to Woodstock onto the same Route 17 that was shut down 40 years ago with music blasting from an era long gone yet deeply rooted in my consciousness. So going to that past that while I never personally experienced seems so real to me uh, when I arrive at Woodstock that I can almost visualize my being there at any given point. And there's always something I want to be doing. I want to be a roadie or a stagehand you know, for all those, um, those musical groups that are such a force at the time and even now just still love their music. Or just be a face in the crowd that connected uh, with the surrounding bodies. In any case, the cosmic wheel of fortune went spinning the next couple of days at this film festival, and serendipitous connections make up this show. With my past firmly set with the collective memories, the future, which is coming up very soon, and you probably would understand that better if once you read my blog. This film took hold of my imagination and the panel discussion preceding it, Redesigning Humanity, The New Frontier, raised questions about transhumanism or transbeeman, an entity that combines human consciousness with artificial intelligence, going further beyond Blade Runner so that afterwards I had to find that physical connection again and I found it in the Mighty You Benefit concert where performers and members of the audience had their ukuleles out in force and the music and singing just kind of brings you back where it, you know, where it started, you know, at this uh, Woodstock Arts and Music Festival. Full circle. This show will have clips from the conversations I had with Eric Nadler, one of the producers and writers of 2B, The Era of the Flesh is Over. You can read the film review on my blog, Ion Indies. 
ionindiefilms.blogspot.com. Then we go into The Mighty Uke with writer cinematographer Tony Coleman and sound editor Steve Traub, who I met when I was scrambling to find mic and headset. Since I left my equipment in another bag at home, I talk about needing a new memory chip. But the Woodstock Music Shop next door to Festival Headquarters saved the day with a used headset I bought for 10 bucks. But it was the Canadian musicians, Tony and Steve, who saved my by lending me a mic with a USB connection. It was in the parking lot that Steve said he could teach anyone to play the ukulele and promised to teach me in five minutes. I held him to that because I never took a music lesson in my life, but I love music and call other music in films such as uh, the Neil Young Trunk Show directed by Jonathan Demme, who's so passionate about this film and I couldn't wait to see it. I had seen excerpts of it at Lake Placid Film Festival last year and loved it and I loved it again I loved the whole thing so can't wait to see it again on the big screen and finally I have uh, Camilla Calamandre who directed the documentary The Tiger Next Door where questions are raised as to why people have to be the master over exotic animals that belong in the wild and are obviously very dangerous. It's an insightful and surprising look into archaic regulation still in place yet resisted by a person's insistence that it's their right to do what they want if they comply with the laws despite putting the surrounding community in, in danger. Overall, this whole thing connects, and you can hear the conversations in their entirety on www.filmfestivalreviews.com. It's been an enlightening and entertaining experience all the way around. Enjoy the show. Eric, I was at the, uh, the panel... That was the first thing, because I heard about to be, I didn't hear a lot about it, but it intrigued me. And so I knew that was one of the, the films that I wanted to see. And then when I do podcasts, when I do these you know, conversations, I always like to see the film first or, or get a little more grip on reality. And I know the film was going to be later and I was trying to set something up, but I'm glad I saw the film and the panel the panel first, I don't know if it should have been reversed because there were so many questions afterwards. Tell me how you got started, or just give me a brief overview of what your your log line is because I'm reading what was printed, and I have a different log line, so go ahead. Okay, I mean, I think your experience uh, in which the uh, information uh, came before the movie mirrored my own experience. Uh, basically, I run a film company in Brooklyn, New York called Transformer Films, and I had come across this phenomenon uh, on my radar screen called transhumanism, uh, which fascinated me. And it uh, basically uh, discussed that the emerging technologies uh, of artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, and genetic engineering was bringing uh, humanity closer to another evolutionary step, uh, one in which it was possible uh, to merge in very short order, it seems, uh, with the machine intelligence that we are creating. And this to me seemed like a transformative major event. And if you go on the internet and you punch in transhumanism, boom, the universe explodes. And uh, I saw that there was a uh, something called Transvision 2005, which is back in 2005, which was going to be a world congress of transhumanists meeting in Caracas, Venezuela. So I took my little PD-150 camera down there 
to begin preliminary shooting on a documentary. Uh, I still have a PD-150. I love those cameras. Yeah, so. Very good. Actually, we used it last night to help us stream the event panel. So when I was there in Caracas, I listened to many fascinating speeches, many along the lines of the panel that was convened here. And in fact, one of the panelists, Martine Rothblatt, who appeared here at Woodstock, was one of the panelists down in Caracas that interested me the most. Uh, her remarks about uh, cyber consciousness and about the evolving legal rights of these uh, new um, entities that uh, we'll be seeing in the future. It's interesting you didn't call them beings, because I know you were just about to say that. I was about to say creatures, beings, entities, I mean, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's another evolutionary step. At some level it's going to be the merging of uh, biological creatures with machine creatures carbon-based creatures with silicon-based intelligence. It'll be a synthesis of, um, of structures that are out there. And it's this type of uh, conversation that uh, Martine uh, conducted down in uh, Caracas that led me to do a personal interview with her, a follow-up. And then afterwards I learned that she was uh, quite an accomplished uh, entrepreneur in her own right. Um, she was the uh, founder of uh, Satellite Sirius, Sirius Satellite Radio which is an achievement in a lifetime enough. But then at one point, one of her daughters contracted a serious disease called pulmonary hypertension. And uh, she studied um, biology and uh, founded a um, uh, biotechnology company called United Therapeutics to essentially develop a cure for this condition. And she did. And basically, um, that company is uh, widely traded on the stock exchange and is considered a successful uh, pillar of the uh, biotechnology community. She's also a lawyer. And she's, uh, she began her uh, life as a lawyer. And she also began her life as uh, Martin Rothblatt. Um, she used to be um, a male and uh, had um, transgender uh, procedures. And she's now Martine Rothblatt. And one thing she said down in Caracas, which summed her up for me, she said uh, transhumanism is the wave of the future, and transgender, transsexualism, uh, is the, are the surfers on that wave. So she became a very interesting uh, personage uh, to me, and she was very much interested in the work uh, that we were doing on a documentary on transhumanism, and uh, we worked out a uh, relationship uh, for her to executive produce a documentary film on uh, transhumanism. I brought uh, Richard Crowling uh, on board, a, a friend, a collaborator for long standard, a really gifted uh, film director who had experience, extensive experience in feature film. And as we crafted the documentary, more and more feature film elements began to uh, creep into it. And so we had this hybrid uh, piece of business uh, that was very interesting. And Ray Kurzweil was uh, another member of the panel, was going to be our central uh, figure in the uh, documentary. After working closely with Ray, um, it was decided that we were going to go to full feature mode. And uh, Ray was going to do his own documentaries, which uh, actually has uh, uh, one uh, called The Singularity is Near, which I believe has just been completed. And there was a documentary about him called Terminal Man. He was sitting behind me in the screening, and he was, you know, just... Uh away at his computer, of course it's a little bit bigger than the one that he was talking about, the pocket-sized one, and the exponentiality of um, technology that's going on right now and how it's just exploding. And again, these things, I mean, people can't catch up. They're onto something and it's already passe or they're behind. And I think the overall feeling from the panel yesterday was awe, but also this fear you know, that uh, 
things are going to be rolling down the hill so fast you can't, they're snowballing and they're rolling and you can't catch it. Uh, Ray is uh, one of the godfathers of uh, transhumanism. Uh, his books are uh, bestsellers and um, he has uh, quite a following, uh, especially in places like the computer departments at Stanford and MIT and such as that. He's a great inventor. He's a hands-on type guy. He's done all kinds of work in uh, uh, assisting the blind to see and um, also in music uh, synthesizers. And a lot of Ray's thoughts have influenced Martine and uh, uh, through Martine influenced our film. His notion that technological growth is exponential is crucial to his vision. In other words, when we think of what the world will be like 40 years from now, we intuitively think in a linear pattern. Okay, maybe we won't have flying cars, but we'll have something close to that. The world will look close to what we imagine it. Ray, in looking at things like computer power and the spread of cell phones and Moore's Law, which shows that um, things are growing at a fast rate and getting cheaper all the time, um, that 40 years of growth won't be linear, but will be equal to about 20,000 years of growth. And that means technological growth and specifically information technology. And as Ray said at the panel, he believes uh, human life on some level can be boiled down to an information technology model. Now, once you start talking like that, that scares a real lot of people. And there is a big debate that's coming. Uh, I think it's the elephant in the room, and it's one of the reasons that we made this movie, to jumpstart the conversation. There are uh, people like Ray and Martine who see this uh, coming transformation and embrace it and say that this will be good for uh, not only a species but for the coming consciousness that emerges uh, on the planet and beyond, basically. There are those, uh, like noted environmental writer uh, Bill McKibben, who's a great uh, thinker, um, is a humanist, and has written a book called Enough, uh, which basically argues uh, against this coming transformation and urges strict regulation, if not outright banning, of the uh, research and scientific innovation that might bring this about. So on one level you have kind of leftist environmentalist humanists are upset about this and just starting now is the churches are beginning to sniff out this uh, coming development. Because if you merge humankind with machines and then you enter into a kind of virtual reality existence, you really have achieved a form of immortality. And once you get immortality, a major raison d'etre for organized religion is removed. I mean, organized religion is wonderful for uh, moral codes and ethical codes and how we live our lives, the Ten Commandments, etc. But ultimately, it's all about dealing with uh, our uh, fear uh, of mortality. And basically, uh, it's a comfort to imagine the afterlives or the next step that uh, these uh, traditional religions uh, promise. Many people say that the Kurzweilian view of transhumanism is in itself another utopian dream, another utopian religion, another sort of afterlife. And instead of going to heaven and wearing white flowing robes and having wings or what have you, or being reincarnated as an insect... You're going to uh, have a mind file. You'll have so. a mind file and you'll live in a virtual reality uh, paradise um, that expands uh, consciousness throughout the universe. In many ways, that's a religious view. That's some critique. But all I'm uh, suggesting is that there is going to be uh, a, a debate that's going to go about the regulations of these technologies, the limits of these technologies, and the potentialities of these technologies. And uh, our film uh, is, uh, I basically call it an entertainment 
uh, designed to jumpstart this conversation. Okay, you could hear more about the synthesis of structures of carbon and silicon entities on uh, filmfestivalreviews.com. And you can uh, check out the panel that was web-streamed at Woodstock at 2bmovie.com. I'm also looking forward to an opportunity to speak with director Richard Crowling, who I know I'll catch up with. So uh, moving along, we're going to hear uh, Tony and Steve from The Mighty Uke. So uh, let's uh, get into that part of the show. We were just talking about it very quickly that I went to the 2B film, and that's all about trans humans, trans Getting, getting our brain human. out of our heads. So after that film, I had to come to where you had the, the ukulele party going on last night. Uh, tell I mean, me a little bit it about it. Wasn't it? It was great. I mean, great. What, what happened here last night is what we discovered wherever we went, you know? That there's, there's a connection between the audience and the player that I have not seen as much. You know, there's there's much performing more like, as yeah. a performer. You're on stage. You're performing. You're doing. You're sad. People are like, bravo, But you know, the ukes come out, and all of a sudden, everyone sings along, and to every song. You know what I mean? And oh, I know no, that case no. sera sera. Whatever will yeah. be, will be. That's going to be my yeah. ending. You know, for my show because <laughs> it's like we don't know what will be, and they're telling yeah. us this will be, and it's like case yeah. sera. We oh, don't know, know what will be. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, uh, and so um, it was great because I'd been to many. Festivals and concerts like this, and last night I got to MC one. You know, which was it was really nice to be able. To, these are the artists that are in the film, uh, able to introduce them to an introduce audience. the film again for me. Okay, sure. Well, Mighty Uke is uh, it's been a labor of love for myself and my partner Margaret for the last couple of years. We have immersed ourselves in now. Get this ukulele culture. Now you wouldn't think that there is even such a thing as ukulele culture. In fact, I think a lot of people, you say ukulele and they don't say Tiny Tim, they go, what? And so we discovered that there's this community that is all about reclaiming the music, average folk reclaiming the music in their lives. And the simplicity of the instrument and its lack of what I would call rock and roll baggage, you know, there's no intimidation factor people gravitate towards it because they can get their hands around it. And so, you know, as a stress management tool, as a, as a, you know, my grandparents had music in their lives, why don't I? There's a dozen different reasons why, uh, why the ukulele is making a comeback. And I think, you know, there's a bit of fatigue with the traditional instruments of rock and roll. I mean, our grandparents, there were many instruments, right? And now it just seems like everything is rock, is, you know, bass, drums, guitar. And if you don't do that like Jimmy Page, don't even bother, you know? I know, you don't and, even have the piano on stage anymore. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. First of all, the ukulele is, it's in our DNA, you know? I mean, I'll tell you a story later on, uh, but, you know, all of our grandparents, man, back in the 20s and 30s, there were millions and millions of American ukulele players. Everybody played the ukulele. And then it just disappeared completely. All the music that all of us were making for ourselves and for each other disappeared in the face of records, recordings, movies. You were encouraged to become a passive participant. And then, you know, uh, uh, just uh, 10 years ago, I guess, a few people started thinking, you know what? I don't care whether it sounds great or not. I care whether I'm making it. 
And so we saw that we see these groups forming of 10, in some places 10 people, some places 20. In Santa Cruz, California, there are thousands of people who are members of the Ukulele Club of Santa Cruz. Once a month, they fill a restaurant like this, and they all play in unison. All of them singing, all of them strumming. And it is powerful. Whenever you get 100 people singing together, it's powerful. And then you get that rhythm, that happy, swingy little ukulele rhythm, and there's just a joy that's happening. And guess what? It's free. You yeah. Know? You had a great turnout. Yes, it was very nice. And wow, you, very nice. for the film, last night, the event, the people brought their ukuleles. Yep. They couldn't wait. Yep, yep. And Stephen promised me that he said he would teach me how to play. Now, I've never had a musical lesson. I once wanted to learn how to play the harmonica, but someone just said, <laughs> no, <laughs> you don't want to do that, it's too hard, right. you know, but I thought that, again, it was very compact. Yeah. So he, he said that he could teach me how to play in five minutes. Now, I'll give him a little more time, but I want to record this. Yeah, I think, I th actually, I would, I, would be, uh, I would be more aggressive and say two minutes. And also, thank the you for this. The mic sounds nice. What? The mic sounds nice. Oh, it does. <laughs> and I said before, you really saved my <laughs> <laughs> Glad we could. Glad we could. So right now we're going to yes. just he's tuning, and I'm going to go over there. And, well, and are you going to go over there? Or is he going to come over here? No. Do you want to record it? I want to record it, but he said it's better if I if we go over there. So I'm going over there right yeah. on. Cool. Okay. Well, good luck. Thank you. And um, I'm off uh, to be and, a uke. And, and email email me a link to it so that I can hear it. After Absolutely. Tony was just saying that you were going to ask me that question. What song do I want to learn? Uh, something very simple. Okay. Because I really don't know. Well, the good stuff's usually simple. Okay. All right. So. Now, which one do you prefer? <gasps> I like that one. Right. I'm going to take a picture of that when we're done. All right. That's it sounds flea. like me. That's the flea. Yeah. What about? This is me. This is me doing this. Well, here. You, what? Well, why don't we start with like this? Okay. One? This one here. Yeah. Third fret. That's okay. it. Oh, actually, before we even start with our fingers, really. Okay, wait, really. Wait, wait, let's start the clock. Now okay. it's 10 to 1. Okay, 10 to 1. So, okay. a big part of it, just put your hand across it and kind of get your right hand used to just that, what kind of rhythm you're in. That, you're, what your right hand's doing, that strum. Find something you like. That's a good one. Yeah. Okay. So just keep that going. And put your third finger on that fret. Did it work? Did it happen? We didn't start singing or anything. We didn't sing, we but you got two chords. Beautiful. I got three. Three. Yeah. There you go. Well, that's <laughs> I couldn't make it. I started, I started going for four. And then... <laughs> <laughs> so, this is great. But you, but you know, like, Thank you again.
Okay, you could check out uh, more on the Mighty Uke uh, website, www.mightyukemovie.com. Also, the Mighty Uke won second place in the audience award. So, congratulations, you guys, and I look forward to getting my first ukulele and uh, really learning how to play it. I'm going to have to practice quite a bit. Okay, uh, onward to our next conversation with... Um, Camila, the tiger next door. Right now in Bearsville Theater, we're downstairs in the green room, and there's things going upstairs all the time. But Camila, I wanted to talk to you about your film, that again, congratulations on having it here at the Woodstock Film Festival. Thank you. We were talking about how some of the questions or some of the reactions to your film was a little unexpected, but before we get that, why don't you just tell me a little bit about your film and why you thought that the reactions were as unexpected or not as imagined always as you would think right. they would be. Well, my film is The Tiger Next Door. It tells the story of one man who's been breeding and selling tigers out of his backyard in Indiana and his sort of fight with the state of Indiana to be able to keep 24 tigers, three bears, six leopards, and a cougar. And his story is actually told against the backdrop of a number of incidents, escapes, attacks, um, and other problematic tiger situations around the country. Because it turns out that there are now more tigers in private hands in the United States than there are wild in the world. My question, as I'm mm -hmm. one of the audience, is why would somebody want to keep tigers just to keep knowing that they are dangerous? I mean, they are wild creatures, they have primitive instincts, right. they attack, right. they eat right. meat. Well people. the cubs the cubs are very are very, very appealing. When they're babies they're very, very appealing. And that only lasts about three months, four months, and then they start getting quite big. So I think that people are drawn in, seduced by that. Yes. And then there's also, you know, historically, human beings have always had this impulse to master the wild or somehow want to somehow be part of that or show their dominance over it. So I think there might be a variety of reasons why people get pulled into it. But then there's also this logic that kicks in about why people start breeding them. And tigers actually breed incredibly well in captivity, unlike some other cats like leopards and which don't breed so well in captivity but tigers do and people get this logic that oh if i breed cubs i could sell some cubs then that would pay to take care of my other animals and so it's a bit of a vicious cycle because people produce these cubs then they think they can do photo ops they can use them sort of exploit them for uh, and, and the truth is then we just end up with a lot of adult tigers which with nowhere to go, very expensive to keep, very dangerous. And so there's this incredible overpopulation of domestic, cap they're not domestic, captive bred tigers in the United States. So when the audience reacted and you said in a way that curiously was not what you expected, well, I think, you know, people talk about this issue, like you make the film and then you send it out in the world and, and suddenly, you know, in a way it's not yours anymore because it's about how it's perceived and received and what it means to people. And it's just been interesting that 
many people watch this film and they have difficulty watching it. They find it very moving. They find it upsetting that the plight of these animals that it's in, they feel it's inappropriate to keep these kind of large wild animals in, any kind, of, <laughs> in any kind of captivity. And then there are other people who, though, have this conversation and this question about how balanced the film is and feeling like that because I gave opportunity to all sides, so there's Dennis, there's this one man who is the breeder, the longtime tiger breeder, there's kind of his nemesis, this man Joe Taft who runs the local sanctuary that takes in unwanted tigers, um, and then there are a number of other experts, then there are the local Indiana DNR officials that have to come in and make decisions about Dennis. And then there's U.S. Fish and Wildlife that does a lot of undercover work around the country concerning exotic and endangered species uh, that are being inappropriately capped or harmed. So there are many, many different constituents are represented in the film. And the idea, the concept from my perspective was to explore what's going on, who's keeping these animals, why are they doing it, really, and in a way, a slice of America. Like, this is an entire population of people around the country who are doing it, hundreds if not thousands of people, keeping exotic animals. And so, to me, this exploration then leads you down this path where you go on this journey and hopefully you can be sympathetic with him, not sympathetic with him, this one breeder, you can be alarmed, upset, but by the end you should have enough information to have some kind of assessment or feeling about where we are. Like, is this unfortunate? Is it upsetting? Do the laws need to be better? And in my mind, it's a devastating indictment of the lack of laws and regulation in this country. And it is a especially by the end of the film, the film kind of builds towards exposing more and more large-scale atrocities that are going on with private owners of these animals. So to me, as I said, it's a searing indictment of the fact that people are allowed to do this, um, that they do do it, that they rationalize it. And then some people watch the film and they say, well, they say, it was so balanced, you know, I didn't know why you let us like him or why did you... You know, or, or I didn't even, there were times when I didn't know what to think because all his neighbors actually support him. And the thing that happened last night is I turned around and I just asked this woman, I said, but really, if you're honest about it, do you, do you not know what to think? And she said, well, no, actually, I personally now feel like it should be illegal. So that's kind of my point. People, what I didn't see coming is that people would have this ongoing commentary about how balanced the film is. And most people are saying that is a positive thing, but my fear is I don't want anybody to think that I think it's okay. But my idea was that if I could expose people to what was going on, that, that you know, in their hearts, and their mind, they would get to the place where it's not about whether this one man is good or bad or evil or deluded or psychologically impaired, it's just that it's not appropriate and it needs to be illegal. Okay, you can um, find out more about The Tiger Next Door on www.thetigernextdoor.com and uh, it's pretty amazing that this is going on and you know, uh, if there was a tiger living next door to me, I'd be a little nervous. So this has been a little bit longer than normal, but uh, everything was just so incredible seeing the films, talking to the filmmakers, the entire programming and the running of the festival was 
absolutely excellent. I want to give special thanks to Eileen, Gabe, Nikki, who helped me out so much in getting me set up and being able to talk to these people, having the access. So thanks again, one and all, and find out more. See who won the Maverick Awards, uh, Fiercely Independent, all that. Absolutely, this is the case. It feels like what a Sundance must have been a long time ago. Uh, this is a great film festival experience, and I highly recommend that you put it on your calendar for next year. So until next time, check out filmfestivalreviews.com, and thanks for listening.